Let's talk about the plague of pornography for just a minute. Wow, this is one of the biggest issues that so many deal with in these latter days, but few talk about it or even know how to talk about it. And when they do talk about it, it's usually in a private setting with a leader who is expected to know how to navigate struggles with pornography. Thankfully, Leading Saints has put together a remarkable resource called Liberating Saints. It's a virtual library with 25 plus presentations focused on helping leaders be better prepared to help someone overcome struggles with pornography. We cover topics like how to minimize shame in the bishop's office, how to talk with children about pornography, and even how to talk about female pornography use in Relief Society. If you'd like to review the Liberating Saints library at no cost for 14 days, simply go to leadingsaints.org 14. That's leadingsaints.org 14. While you're at it, we'll give you access to all of our virtual libraries that cover several leadership-related topics. So click the link in the show notes or simply visit leadingsaints.org 14. Before we jump into the content of this episode, I kind of feel it's important that I introduce myself. Now, many of you have been around a long time. You're well familiar with my voice and with Leading Saints as an organization. But if you're not, well, my name is Kurt Frankham, and I am the Executive Director of Leading Saints and the podcast host. Now, Leading Saints is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping Latter-day Saints be better prepared to lead. And we do that through, well, content creation like this podcast and many other resources at leadingsaints.org. And uh, we don't act like we have all the answers or uh, know exactly what a leader should do or not do, but we like to explore the concepts of leadership, the science of leadership, what people are researching about leadership, and see how we can apply them to a Latter-day Saint world. So here we go. Allow me to introduce today's interview with Adam Miller. Now, I connected with Adam Miller a few months back and I heard that he was writing this new book and anytime that Adam Miller writes a book I I look forward to it I can't wait to jump in and read it and that's exactly what I did with this book Original Grace an experiment in restoration thinking and I can't recommend this book enough so insightful around the doctrine of grace and so it was fun to have this conversation with Adam Miller about the concept of grace just by way of introduction, if you're not familiar with uh, Adam Miller, uh, let me read the about the author a section in his book. Adam S. Miller is a professor of philosophy at Collin College in McKinney, Texas. He earned a BA in comparative literature from Brigham Young University and an MA and PhD in philosophy from Villanova University. He's author of more than 10 books, including Letters to a Young Mormon, which I highly recommend. I love that book. An Early Resurrection and Mormon, A Brief Theological Introduction. He and his wife, Gwen, have three children. And in this episode, listen to the how uh, we approach grace and, and how Adam articulates grace in the concept of, of the bishop's office and the repentance process. And how can we apply the doctrine of grace uh, more effectively rather than defaulting to this concept of original sin. It's all about original grace. So here's my interview with Adam Miller, the author of Original Grace, an experiment in restoration thinking. Adam Miller, welcome to the Leading Saints podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you know, I recently um, picked up your book, Original Grace, an experiment in restoration thinking. And I must say, I just appreciate so much this book. I appreciate a lot of your books because though you're a philosopher, you uh, keep them short too. Is, is that a rare thing for a philosopher? It's a strategy uh, on yeah. my part. Uh, I don't, my philosophy books are probably not as short or as accessible, uh, <laughs> but I, I do try to keep the uh, general audience books uh, punchy and available. Yeah. Love it. Well, I, I appreciate it for sure. And, um, and I've read a, f a few other books. Like, when do you realize, okay, I've got to write this book? Or was there a moment for this book, Original Grace? This is a book I've been writing for 20 years in lots nice. of ways. <laughs> uh, my graduate training, as you mentioned, is in philosophy. Right? I have a PhD in philosophy, and I specialize in philosophy of religion. And from the very start, 20 years ago now, uh, my research emphasis was on the question of grace. Hmm. So I've written, I've written four books now 
uh, not counting my dissertation with grace in the title. And uh, <laughs> two of those academic books just meant for uh, other academics, other philosophers, uh, not even for Latter-day Saints in particular. Two for Latter-day Saints. Uh, and then, of course, I've written a bunch of other books that don't use grace in the title but are still actually about grace. Yeah. <laughs> so for me, I mean, this book in particular for me was a kind of, felt like a kind of distillation uh, of some of the key ideas that I've worked hard to unmine and uh, find ways to articulate over, over a long time now. Yeah. And what, I mean, obviously I would define grace as at the, the core of our doctrine and belief. Um, but why, what is it about grace that keeps bringing you back and keeps showing up in the books? Is it simply that it's at the core or is there something else to it in, in your experience? Yeah, I think number one, it's at it's at the core, right? We're we're Christians, and uh, grace is at the core of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So for me too, I mean, grace is grace is a really powerful name for what it's like to interact with God, right? Grace is something like a name for the place where my life and God's life overlap, uh, and so investigating grace has felt for me to be something like the best I can do at a direct investigation of, of God's involvement in my life. Yeah. Love it. Uh, and at the beginning of the book and, and throughout the book, really you reference Stephen Robinson's work. Uh, I think most individuals or most Latter-day Saints know his work at, with uh, believe Christ. And he was, I think you mentioned this or you articulate this in some, some form, like he was really the first Latter-day Saint to really articulate of how we believe grace and how it fits into our theology. Is that a good way to say it? Or how would you uh, define his work and his role in, in the, around the doctrine of grace? Yeah. Like a lot of people, Stephen Robinson's book, believing Christ uh, hit me right in the heart when I read it uh, on my mission back in the mid nineties. And in lots of ways introduced me to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I feel yeah. like, uh, one of the things that's really powerful about that book is that it's a kind of, I think it's a kind of direct response, uh, and Brother Robinson himself described it this way, that it's a kind of direct response to President Benson's insistence that we as Latter-day Saints go back and read the Book of Mormon. Hmm. And one of the first things uh, Brother Robinson argued that happens when we go back and read the Book of Mormon really carefully, really seriously, is that we discover that as Latter-day Saints, grace is our word too, right? That it doesn't just yeah. belong to the Protestants, right? That it's not just a kind of football that we, uh, that we fight over in kind of, uh, uh, <clears throat> uh, sectarian wars with other Christians about faith versus faith versus works, etc. And so I think, yeah, brother Robinson was really kind of crucial, kind of a crucial first step for us as Latter-day Saints is probably not, I wouldn't say reclaiming a doctrine of grace, but reclaiming that word grace, to describe that crucial part of the gospel. Yeah. And do you feel like, like, is it crucial that we use the word grace? Cause I think if I'm, if I remember right, Elder Bednar has sort of defined that whenever we say the enabling power of the atonement, what we really mean is grace, but is it, is it crucial that we simply use the term grace or is it maybe it just semantics? Well, who am I to disagree with? With Elder, <laughs> with Elder Bednar. Uh, I'm not trying to pit you against an apostle here. But, <laughs> uh, but it's certainly a word that's central to what seemed to me the most pivotal parts uh, of the New Testament. Yeah. Uh, after the Gospels, uh, Paul's epistles, some of our best and clearest articulations of what's at stake in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and certainly it, it rolls off the tongue in a way that enabling power of the atonement doesn't. Yeah, that's for sure. That's for sure. Um, and, and in the book, as you talk, talk about uh, Brother Robinson's work, I think you've, you say in a way that maybe he didn't go far enough with it, or he still sort of articulated and framed it as if grace is still the backup plan. Um, so what were you hold, hoping to build onto this concept and understanding of, of grace by this, uh, this book? It's something like the impetus for the book itself. My gut sense that as Latter-day Saints, we still haven't quite found a native, original way of talking about grace in the context of the Restoration. Though I think we have really powerful tools at our disposal 
to do so. And tools that may maybe in many respects are much more powerful than are available to uh, traditional Christian theists. Uh, that's something we can talk about later. Uh, but for me, yeah, the the next step I think that needs to be taken for Latter Day Saints in terms of thinking about grace in a way that's really faithful to the Restoration itself and not just borrowed from Protestantism is to think about grace itself as original, right? As not being God's backup plan. So, for instance, Brother Robinson describes, I think in a really powerful way, grace as what flows out of my partnership with Jesus Christ, right? I'm saved by God's grace when I enter into this partnership with Jesus Christ, such that when I'm judged, uh, he and I are judged together as a kind of collective body. And I think that's right. Uh, grace is manifest, especially in, in that partnership that we enter into with, with Jesus Christ. But as Brother Robinson describes it, he still describes this partnership with Jesus Christ as a kind of backup plan. That if I fail to save myself, then I'll have to enter into this partnership with Jesus Christ that, that Christ, of course, is ready and willing and able to offer to me. But I think as Latter-day Saints, at the end of the day, we're probably a lot better off, uh, and this is something we can do that maybe other Christians can't, we're probably a lot better off talking about grace as plan A, right, as the original plan, hmm. and that all of our attempts to save ourselves those are a manifestation of my sinfulness and of a kind of rejection of God's original offer of grace and partnership, uh, which was, as best I can tell, uh, both the means and the end of salvation. Yeah. And when you say, like, our attempts to save ourselves, like, what, what does that look like in application um, when we're attempting to save ourselves? Because I think, I mean, most Latter-day Saints say, no, I believe in Jesus. I mean, yeah, of course. So when do we fall into that trap of saving ourselves? Yeah, I think we try to save ourselves when we mishandle God's law, right? When we misuse God's law, uh, in a sense, right? If, if God's law is, uh, is, a, is a kind of tool, is like a knife, uh, then as sinners, what happens is that uh, we try to save ourselves and we, and we grab it from the wrong end, right? And we just end up hurting ourselves. <laughs> Instead yeah. of grabbing it by the handle, we, we, grab, it, we grab it by the blade. And we use it in this kind of uh, backwards, self-harming way, God's law. And I think one of the best ways to summarize that is just to say that we use God's law uh, as a way of trying to secure love for us, right? We use God's law as a kind of tool to convince God to love us. Uh, it's about being loved, Right when we handle the law in this kind of backwards way. When uh, I think God's law can only be successfully uh, morally used uh, if we use it instead to love. Uh, and that's what grace is about, of course, at the end of the day. It's about God loving us and about us loving God. And it's about us abandoning this kind of wrong-headed project to try to use God's law to force him to love us instead, right? Mm -hmm. Be uh, a passive voice here instead of instead of active voice, being loved rather than loving. Yeah, and that sort of went, it gets into some murky waters. Even a few weeks ago, um, uh, my elders quorum sort of came uh, in this discussion about you know this concept of unconditional love, and um, you know how some interpreted that. Oh no, we don't we don't believe that God's love is unconditional. And I I sort of sat there thinking, no, we we do believe His love is unconditional. Um, so how would you are, unpack that in the context of, of this original grace that as far as the, the love of God and whether it's unconditional or not, or maybe those are even the wrong words to use? Yeah, it does. It does get a little, uh, tricky here, especially with that word in particular that president Nelson has, has urged us to, uh, be cautious right. uh, in our use of that word unconditional coupled with, with God's love. But I think, as best I can tell, uh, what President Nelson is after there uh, is something along the lines of of God's love always being fitted to the particulars of our needs, right? That it's not unconditional in the sense that it, uh, in this kind of blanket, generalized fashion, just gives everyone everything all at once. 
right? But that God's love is uh, is relative, in a sense, to the quality of our relationship to Him, right? It's relative to the particular circumstances in which we find ourselves. God's love is always fitting itself to the particular conditions uh, uh, that we're living in, so that it always has this quality of uh, of responding to the particular needs that we have at any given moment, uh, which often don't match up very neatly with what you and I think we want at any given moment. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. uh, such that, you know, just talking about God's love as, as something generic and unconditional can, can, I think, confuse people in terms of maybe that crucial difference between God always giving us, trying to give us what we need and versus our expecting God always to give us what it is that we want. Yeah. And, and I sometimes relate it to like, if God had, had cooked us a remarkable gourmet meal with all the trimmings and there it is set out on the table and he's inviting us to sit down and partake, but we still have to sit down and partake of his love. Not because he, and, and maybe if our actions aren't up to par, it doesn't mean he, he cooked a mediocre meal on that day. No, he's always cooking that remarkable meal and inviting us to sit. And if we don't sit, then it can feel like God's love is conditional because we went through that day without his full love. But it was us that made it conditional that we didn't sit down and, and, and partake of it. Is that a fair analogy? And, and Yeah, I think that's a big part of it, is the way that we're constantly rejecting and refusing and suppressing and running from the love that God is expressing towards us. Yeah. Though I think we can, we can probably modify that analogy a little bit also to say something like, I mean, you and I sit down at that same table together. God knows that I'm uh, uh, gluten intolerant. Uh, he's not going to give me the pizza, right? No matter how much, no matter how much I feel like I really want pizza that day, right? God's love is not going to express it as a kind of, express itself as kind of unconditional willingness to give me whatever I want, right? God's love is going to express itself as his, uh, as his withholding from me that pizza because he knows it won't be good for me. Yes. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. That's helpful. And then we may interpret that as in, you know, why are you, why are you punishing me like this? Right. <laughs> when in reality he's, he's saving us, he's loving us and protecting us. Right? Yeah. Kurt's on his, uh, on his fourth slice over there. Why can't I have some pizza too? <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. I love that. Appreciate you playing off my uh, my analogy there. So, sure. <laughs> so anything else worth saying as far as obviously the the, the uh, title original grace is sort of a playoff of the the typical term we hear is original sin. Um, and how 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 would you unpack this further as far as how we approach life and the gospel from this original sin mentality, and then what does it look like approaching it in the in the original grace mentality? Yeah. A traditional Christian understanding uh, of grace is framed by their commitment to a doctrine of original sin. What I think could be genuinely original and native to a Latter-day Saint way of talking about grace is to scuttle both the name and the logic behind the doctrine of original sin and just begin from, from the idea of grace. I think part of the trouble for us as Latter-day Saints is that we still end up borrowing a lot of language and a lot of ideas and a lot of assumptions from traditional Christianity about the nature of sin and about the nature of grace that don't fit very well Hmm. uh, with core doctrines of the Restoration. Um, There's a kind of logic at the heart of original sin, I think, that depends on the idea uh, that suffering can be deserved, right? Uh, That justice requires, in some way, God to respond to evil with evil. Uh, And that this evil then takes the form of suffering. And thus, suffering can itself have this kind of moral weight to it and can show up for something in our lives, can show up to us in our lives as something that can be deserved. But I think at the end of the day, that's not just a bad account of the nature of God's grace. It's probably a bad account of the nature of justice. And if we as Latter-day Saints are going to try to rethink in a kind of original native way what grace is, that will also require from us an attempt to to kind of rethink in an an original native way what justice is. I think a good model for, for justice 
right, as the very thing that God's law requires. A good model for that is Jesus' own description in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, in Matthew chapter 5 especially. Right, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says again and again, look, I know what I'm about to tell you is going to seem like I'm blowing up God's law, but it's not. It's actually going to fulfill God's law. It's actually the very thing that his law requires in order for justice to be achieved. And he summarizes at the end of the day what the law requires in terms of loving your enemy. If you just love those who do good to you, if you just love those who love you and return good for good, Jesus says, you haven't fulfilled the law. If you return evil for evil, you haven't achieved justice and you haven't fulfilled the law. In fact, what the law commands, what the law requires, is that I love even my enemies, that I respond not only to good with what's good, that I respond to evil with what's good. Justice is only in the business of what's good, right? Justice never is in the business of doing evil, even in response to evil. With that concept, this is where I, I really had to slow down with the, the reading and like this, this, the justice is there, not as the punishment, but as for the good, not for the bad. Like keep going with that anyways, because that's something that really hit me poignantly, but I don't know if I grasped it fully. Well, yeah, well, this, Jesus says, is not only what you and I are commanded to do, right? This is, the, this is in some the whole of the law, right? He mm-hmm. says on it, on this commandment to love God and to love your neighbor and even your enemy, on that commandment hang all of the law and the prophets. Right? And it's not just what we're commanded to do. It's as Jesus describes it in Matthew 5. It's what God himself does. God sends his reign on the just and the unjust. Right? He causes his son to rise on the good and the evil, Jesus says. This is how God deals with us, and this is what he commands us to do in turn. That, I think, is a pretty good account of justice. Is that justice only ever commands us to do what's good. Uh, a moral imperative to do evil in response to evil, to be honest, doesn't make any sense to me in the first place. How could you have a moral imperative to do evil? How could you have a moral imperative to cause, to cause other people to, to suffer? Yeah. Uh, so I think at the end of the day, uh, we're a lot better off thinking about justice in terms of that logic that Jesus himself outlines. Justice requires what's good in every case. Uh, which means justice requires that we give what's needed in, in every case. That's what's always commanded. Now, what's needed in any given instance uh, is going to vary pretty wildly, right? Uh, you may need a piece of, piece of pizza, and I may need to never be given that piece of pizza, right, depending on our, on our particular circumstances. Uh, so God's always going to tailor that, right, to what our actual individual needs are, what, what good it is that I need versus what good it is that you need, depending on where we're at and what's going on. Uh, but the but the the fundament of the commandment is the same, which is always to only and always give what's good, and even maybe we could trot out the word unconditionally here, right? To unconditionally do what's good, even to our enemies, which I think means that for Latter Day Saints, uh, the underlying logic of grace is more or less identical to the underlying logic of justice. To do justice is to do what is to give what good is needed, whatever the circumstance in response to anyone, whether friend or enemy. And that's just another name for grace, to give good for good and good for evil. Such that it turns out that grace is not an exception to the law or a way around the demands of the law, but we're a lot better off thinking about grace as the very thing that the law commands. Hmm. Yeah. And I guess, and then sometimes we, we frame this and, and that, you know, when we sin, there's sort of this feeling of like, of like, oh no, God's coming for us. You know, he's, he's got to respect the justice just like he respects mercy. So I, I got some form of punishment coming for me because I sinned. And that framing is just faulty altogether when in reality he's coming to us with even more grace. Is that, am I framing that right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, if what we mean when we make a mistake is that, oh no, God is going to return evil to me now that I've done evil, that doesn't make any sense. God is not in the evil business. Yeah, God doesn't do evil. Uh, if what we mean, though, is something like, oh no, I've really screwed up. I've really made myself sick, for instance. I ate all that pizza and shouldn't have. Now God 
uh, rather than as judge or lawyer, right? God as doctor is going to come with the treatment that I need and it may not be pleasant. That of course is a grace, right? If your doctor shows up with the treatment that you would have rather avoided, that is going to be painful and unpleasant, but will ultimately be for your good. That's one thing. That's, that is a grace. That's a good thing. That's what justice commands. Um, but God's not coming to, to punish us with the treatment, right? He's coming to save us with the treatment and the treatment's good for us, even if it's yeah. difficult. Yeah. And that's, you know, and oftentimes as I, if I've tried to articulate this concept of grace and, um, you know, I, cause I, I truly believe like God with his full knowledge, especially his full belief and knowledge in, in the saving power of his son, Jesus Christ, like in my mind, it's almost impossible for God to be disappointed. And when I put that out there in a much more elementary level of framing this concept, a lot of people resist of like, well, what about all those scriptures where God sure seems mad and he's coming after the people and, you know, I, I am not well pleased or, you know, Joseph Smith loses the 116 pages and it's almost a scolding for verse after verse. And um, I mean, like, how, how do you frame it in that context when it's sometimes it seems like God's coming after us or we have scriptural examples that God's really perturbed? <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, well the the scriptural accounts are pretty uneven, right, in the way that we talk about this sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you and I uh I think as careful readers of scripture we'll have to make decisions about what kind of ideas we think are fundamental and what kinds of ideas then are, as Joseph Smith put it, just appendages, right, that need to be read in light of that fundamental truth. So I don't want to rule out, for instance, the possibility that that God might be sad or disappointed or uh, even upset or angry uh, in light of some of the things that people do. Uh, People do some pretty horrific things uh, that anger might be the appropriate response for. The question for me, then, is just another version of the same question we just asked a moment ago. Is God's anger... Um, is it a function of and subordinate to his love? Is his anger itself an expression of his love? Uh, or are we thinking about his anger as something that overpowers then his love and commitment to us, right? Such that he finds himself unable to, to stop from just returning evil to us in response to our, our evil, as if he were capable of, of evil. Uh, if people want to say that God's love is, is subordinate to his anger, I don't buy it. I don't. I won't buy it on any grounds, philosophical, theological, scriptural. If people want to leave open the door, and I think I do, to the idea that God's anger and wrath might itself be an expression of His love as something that I, of a, a good that I may in fact need uh, at a particular moment, then I'm wide open to that. Right, but the tools at His disposal are are whatever He finds useful. Uh, but what I would want to insist on is the fact that they are all expressions of his love for us and they're all meant at the end of the day to be for our good. Yeah. Yeah. Love that. Um, and I, it's, it's a shame I haven't uh, referenced this up until now, but I really appreciate it in your book, just the, the perspective of your relationship with your earthly father who, who uh, you talk about his, um, his mortal struggles with health and then uh, his death in there. What, was that, uh, like you said, you've been writing this book for 20 years, maybe in your, in your mind and whatnot. It was, I mean, maybe like what it was about your dad that, that was, it was obvious to include him in this discussion of original grace. Yeah. Yeah. My dad figures large, uh, in the book. So I've been writing the book for 20 years in one sense. <laughs> uh, but you know, writing, writing this particular book, uh, um, took me about 18 months starting back in 2020, 2019, uh-huh. something like that. And I was about halfway through the first draft of the book when my father died uh, in June 2020. And about halfway through the book then, I, try, I started trying to write about his death and the context of the book. And by the time I finished that first draft of the book, uh, which was about twice as long as, as the nice short, tight version that you have <laughs> uh, in hand, it was obvious to me that, number one, I needed to cut about uh, half of what was in the book, just cut it to the bone. 
but it was also obvious to me that I needed to to reorganize all the stuff that started to bubble up in the middle about my dad to reorganize the whole book uh, around my relationship with my dad. And so I talk about both my experience of my father's death as part of the book, and I also try to incorporate uh, as kind of the backbone of the book my father's own life and words as kind of uh, running examples of the things I'm talking about when I'm trying to talk about grace. Yeah. Yeah. And I just love the, you know, as he talked about his father and sort of the uh, trauma he experienced there, but the forgiving nature he approached that with was, I mean, to me, it just uh, illustrated the concept of grace so, so cleanly and it was so easy to absorb. I loved it. Um, Yeah. Let me, let me just say one, let me say one thing about that. Jesus uh, in the New Testament never outlines five stages of repentance or however many. <laughs> the, the, or however many there are. There are so it's not, Depends not on your primary those, teacher. But. How many, yeah. The, not that those might not be helpful. Uh, but Jesus' account of what you have to do to be forgiven is pretty straightforward. If you want to be forgiven, Jesus says, you have to forgive. That's it. That's the straight path. That's the direct route. Uh, into partnership with him and into relationship with God uh, and to an experience of his grace is to give it. If we want to be forgiven, the work is simple. Forgive everyone, everything. And that's that that's simple, right? <laughs> it's that simple. You know, and the details, of course, that that requires quite a bit of discernment. To yeah. figure out, you know, how best to meet the needs of the people that we're trying to forgive, right? What good is it that they actually need from me in order for our relationship to be healed? Yeah, uh, and that can get complicated, and it can be painful and difficult sometimes. Yeah, uh, but yeah, again, you know, from ten thousand feet, that's all there is to it. Yeah. If we want to be, if we want to be forgiven, there's no mystery. We forgive. Yeah, that's powerful. So. You know, maybe pivoting back a little bit towards this justice and mercy concept. Um, you know, obviously, leading saints, this podcast, this platform, is maybe application heavy or you know, best practice heavy. Because the unique thing about, I don't know if it's unique, but obviously, a church leader has the doctrine of Jesus Christ. They've got the scriptures, but then it's suddenly it's Sunday afternoon at you know two o'clock in the afternoon, and they have to apply this in the context of maybe a bishop sitting in in their office with them with with an individual who's really struggling with pornography or an elders quorum president who's just had it and he just cannot understand why he can't get his elders to to do something or sign up for the canning assignment or whatever and you know i can go on about examples and so like with this original grace like if you're speaking to a room of leaders how do we manifest this doctrine in our leadership experience? Yeah, that's a great question. Let me say up front that that I've never served in, in that sort of position of, of responsibility and, and authority, so I'm, I'm speculating. Okay. About <laughs> what kinds of things would be useful, right? I've never I've never yeah. sat in those rooms. I've never worn those I've never borne those mantles and I've I have a lot of love and respect and appreciation for people who are willing to do that. And I'm grateful that they do. I mean, I think the question that I would, if I were a bishop sitting in those rooms, the question I would want to come back to again and again is just some, some version of what does this person need from me, right? What good does this person need? Uh, and then that's, that's the continual work of discernment, right? Just to try to, try to feel our way forward uh, hand in hand with the Spirit of God into some understanding of, of what this person needs right here and now. Um, we can leave aside, I think, altogether any sort of questions about what they do or don't deserve. What people do or don't deserve is entirely immaterial to what God's law demands of us in terms of giving whatever good is needed in response to whatever they've done, whether it was good or evil. A good example of this, I think, is the way, for instance, that church disciplinary councils are meant to work. Right now, again, I've never participated uh, in one of these, 
But my understanding is that the handbook is very clear about the fact that any sort of discipline that is administered uh, is to be tailored to what is best for that person to bring them back into relationship to God. Right? We're not looking here for punishment or penalization or making sure people suffer whatever it is that they deserve. We're, we're looking for whatever it is that that particular individual needs in order to best set them most quickly and most directly back into a relationship with God. And that can be painful and difficult, like any sort of uh, operation or treatment. Uh, but, you know, if you're going to cut out the cancer, you got to cut out the cancer. Right. Yeah. And I appreciate that because sometimes there is this feeling in those contexts of, boy, does this individual understand how serious this is, right? And there's maybe this natural uh, urging to cast them out so that they feel that, that they feel hell for a while so that they'll want to come back to heaven. But in reality, if we can come together and say, how can we help them feel heaven so that they will encourage, encourage, um, continue to, to reach for heaven that I think fits your concept well of like the justice they need is good. They need more grace, more good for them to continue on in their, in their mortal journey. Is that, is that fair? Yeah, and they, I mean, they may not see it. They may not be in a position to appreciate it. Right. Right? But that's a, that's our responsibility, uh, is to act in God's name, uh, guided by His Spirit, to do what He directs us as, as best for them. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, it's, it's a good question to ask ourselves, too. I mean, if I'm, if I'm a bishop uh, and I'm sitting across a, a desk from a parade, uh, of young men and young women who have almost universally been been exposed to some sort of uh, pornography online. The question I would want to ask myself again and again is not, you know, not what evil have these people done, and, and what evil are they uh, are they involved in? But again and again, what what does this kid actually need? Right? What's going to help this kid? to arrive someday at some point where they can have a meaningful sexual relationship with another human being. Uh, and that may not look like right, some sort of uh, absolute, unconditional, universal, one-size-fits-all prescription about what they should or shouldn't be doing. Right? It may, it may require a specific sort of tailoring to their individual needs, and, and that would be maybe a very different mindset, a very different set of goals yeah. uh, in response to where they're at. Yeah, and I, I, that's such a um, applicable question and, and simple to remember. And just sitting with that person with as much love as we can have, and just asking what what is it that they need, you know, and not something evil, but something really good that would would lead them to the Savior who can heal them. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's a chapter, I guess, uh, at the beginning of the book about the concept of suffering, and this is always a an interesting concept in the context of leadership when, you know, I remember being the Bishop who had to sit with that mother who just lost her nine-year-old boy suddenly. Right. And <laughs> man, I mean, talking about an impossible situation and, and her looking to me as if, you know, hoping I would say something or have some reason or explanation for it all of just this suffering. And I think there's few lessons you learn more in mortality than, than that suffering and why we go through it. The uh, one scripture that, as I read this chapter about suffering, that my mind kept going to is, uh, yeah. So in, in in my mind was the scripture in Acts nine with uh, Ananias, you know, who's commanded to go find Paul or Saul, and and um, the Lord says, "For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake." And just this concept of suffering as a, I, I don't know how I'd frame it, but there's always this desire of of a leader striving to frame suffering in a way that can be, that can ease the pain of mortality, the individual suffer, even the, the deepest of, of sufferings. And um, how, how would you begin to articulate this concept of, of suffering in, in a gospel context? Uh, the title of the book is Original Grace. The subtitle of the book is uh, An Experiment uh, in Love Restoration it. Thinking. Uh, because the book depends in part on our making a couple of philosophical decisions 
uh, that will then shape how we think about the rest of these questions. Mm-hmm. And I'm open to the possibility that other people would would choose a different set of assumptions about both the nature of the world and the nature of suffering that then would go on to inform how they think about. Yeah. And this is uh, the world you live in with philosophy, right? right? There's right. always this, another approach, right? Yeah. And it's, it's the world we all live in, though we, we all live in, though we don't normally, sure. we don't normally pay any attention to our assumptions. <laughs> it's easier, it's easier to pretend you people don't exist, you philosophers, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. So it's sensitive, sensitive to my own uh, assumptions here. I mean, my position would be with respect to the nature of reality that suffering is just part of how things are. That suffering is in itself neither good nor bad, right? It's just a feature uh, that grows out of relationality itself, right? It's a feature that grows out of the very material character of the world in which we are embedded, in which energy has to circulate, in which one thing is always dependent on something else, in which, in which the whole vast web of creation and reality is this kind of interwoven, interdependent tapestry. It's just, it's just a, f- a feature of how things are. And I think if we're going to detach ourselves from the doctrine of original sin, then part of that uh, involves detaching ourselves from that assumption at the heart of original sin that suffering uh, has a kind of inherent moral value, right? Uh, and the kind of assumption at the heart of original sin is that all suffering uh, is deserved, right? It's a, it's, all suffering is a manifestation uh, of a punishment that you deserved. Or somebody, Adam and Eve, maybe necessarily, right? And we, mm. we, we inherit in some sense uh, yeah. that sort of deserved suffering. Yeah, hence the original sin, right? That's why we frame yeah, it. Exactly. They it's made a mistake, and we're we're experiencing the consequences of the the suffering of that mistake, right? Yeah, and all of that suffering, all of that pain, it all goes back to to a kind of punishment that was deserved. And if they hadn't deserved that punishment, there wouldn't be any suffering. We wouldn't have fallen, we wouldn't be dying, we wouldn't be sick, none of those things. Uh, I, don't, I don't buy that. I don't, I don't buy it philosophically. I don't, I don't think it squares at all with what the Restoration teaches about the nature of the fall uh, or about the nature of uh, post-mortal kingdoms of glory. Right? Latter-day Saints, for instance, don't believe in anything like hell where sinners go to be punished forever. Right. Uh, we, don't, we just don't, we flat out don't believe that. And I think that's because we don't believe that suffering is a punishment. <laughs> we don't believe in the doctrine of original sin. Suffering is just part of how things are. Where good and evil enter in uh, is not at the level of the suffering itself, but at the level of our response to that suffering. Right? If we respond in light of God's law to suffering with what's needed, with the good and grace that's needed, and then we're fulfilling that law. Justice can be achieved and that suffering can be relieved and or redeemed. If we don't respond to that suffering, which is neither good or evil in itself, in light of God's law, then we're being evil, right? Then we're, then we're exacerbating that suffering. We're compounding it uh, and we're investing it with this moral dimension of evil that uh, only makes things worse at every level. Yeah. Um, and there's this, let me, I'm going to pull up the quote here from, from your book. Um, so you said, uh, broadly, we might say where the logic of original sin sees Christ's vicarious suffering as a suffering in place of us, the logic of original grace sees Christ's vicarious suffering as a suffering with us. And that was an interesting dynamic to see that suffering is, you know, it's, we always try and separate it from this stuff like that. That is Jesus's role in and he can have it. Thank you very much. Like, and, and that's where we feel so grateful that he's taken it, but it was almost a deeper perspective of seeing suffering as something he does with us rather than for us. Is that, uh, how would you articulate that? Yeah. Well, first it just comes right back to your previous example with, with Ananias, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, to become a disciple of Christ is to take up that cross, right? And to suffer with Christ. Mm-hmm. That's the work, Right. Uh, is to be in it together with one another, relieving and redeeming the suffering as God's own law commands us to do. 
that's the work. And a big part of that work, of course, is, is forgiving, forgiving other people, forgiving ourselves, uh, and just giving what's good then, instead of trying to demand uh, evil in response to, to evil. But that part that you just read there is from the central chapter in the book, which was, which was the hardest to write and which, which I wrote and rewrote numerous times from scratch. <laughs> nice. uh, because the kind of the model that we inherit from traditional Christianity, the model that we, the model of atonement that we inherit is uh, what we, what theologians describe as a kind of penal substitution theory of mm-hmm. model. A, th- a penal substitution theory of, uh, of atonement, right? That model of atonement. And it's called penal substitution because the assumption at the heart of that model is that people need to be punished with evil if they've done evil. That justice requires this. That justice requires that God himself be in the business of delivering evil. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and then how we end up thinking about Jesus in relationship to this is that Jesus comes in takes the suffers the evil for us so that God can then instead give us what's good, right? We can circumvent the demands of justice with this act of mercy on Jesus's part, which is a way of saying traditionally that penal substitution theory of atonement sees the basic problem at the heart of human experience as a problem that's internal to God, that God's own justice is compatible, is incompatible with God's own grace. Right? And God needs Jesus to find a workaround so that he can still give us what's good, even though we really deserve what's evil. Hmm. Yeah. If we just abandon the doctrine of original sin and no longer claim that people need evil in response to evil, but that instead we're only ever morally obligated to, to do what's good, God himself included, then that leaves us uh, needing to think about the nature of Jesus' atonement in a different way. Uh, and instead of thinking about his atonement uh, as an act of kind of uh, penal substitution, a kind of vicarious suffering of evil on our behalf uh, that God himself requires Jesus to suffer, we, asked that we instead, I think, can take very seriously the idea that he still suffers vicariously, uh, uh, but that he does it with us rather than in place of us. That what God's law requires is not that somebody suffer evil, but that what God law re- what God's law requires, even of Jesus, is that Jesus himself come and give whatever good is needed. And that, in fact, I think is what we see him doing by way of his atonement, coming to rescue us with whatever good is needed, regardless of whatever you and I have done. Yeah. And there's such a deeper relational component in the, by framing it that he's suffering with us, rather than just taking it away. I mean, um, because it's him sitting with us in the suffering, I mean, you can't help but love that that being that does that is willing to do that. Um, of course, I think, you know, I superficially, I think we would love for him to come and just take the suffering away, and we feel fine. But then there's no relationship left after that, right? Yeah, and and this plays out, I think, in all different kinds of ways. Sometimes, uh, you know, with a snap of his finger the suffering is relieved, right? Yeah. An enormous burden is gone, and yes. we are literally starting a new life, reborn, mm-hmm. right? And sometimes, uh, given the nature of the problem, the best, that he, the best thing that he can do for us uh, is to just be in it with us, right? To mourn with us and grieve with us and bear the burden with us. And once that burden becomes shared, once the burden of that suffering is shared with him, it also fundamentally changes the quality of our experience of that suffering. For one, we no longer experience our own suffering as if it were a sort of punishment that we deserved, which is its own sort of relief. Um, And number two, once it's shared uh, and the quality of the suffering changes, uh, then the suffering itself undergoes a sort of redemption, even if it isn't simply removed from us. Yeah, love that. I want to go back to that, your, your subtitle that you highlighted earlier, like this experiment in restoration thinking. And I so appreciate that approach to the gospel because I don't think we're the only ones that only religion, religious community that has this, this uh, culture in it. But there's this feeling of like, there's like when I speak up in Sunday school, that's not the place to experiment. And we just need to, to speak truth and, and what's right. And, 
not, you know, and, and we're not, we're not going to go exploring or go on a journey of experimentation to see what we can learn. Um, but that's where like my deepest learning has come. And there's even times that I've, like, I have a certain framework and approach to the gospel and people can say, well, I can point out three things that aren't, that aren't right or that aren't doctrine or whatever. And I think, well, know that I'm not like trying to conclude anything. I'm just trying to interact with God through these experiments and see if there's a deeper, deeper meaning in maybe something I'm missing by only looking at the facts of doctrine or the revealed truth or whatever it is. So anything else you would say as far as just an, an encouragement of, of each individual taking on this, this approach of ex- experimenting with our theology? It's exactly the mandate that Alma gives the Zoramites in Alma 32, right? Is that their main, their mandate is to experiment on the word, right? That they have to find the word, uh, plant it, get it to grow and see if they can't manage to, uh, turn it into a tree of life that will bear the fruit, uh, of eternity that they are looking for. That's, that's difficult. That's difficult work, right? Uh, and it's not something that other people can do for you on your behalf, right? It's the kind of work that you and I are individually, not just collectively, but individually responsible for engaging in on a daily basis. Uh, as I search not just the scriptures, for instance, but as I search for God in the scriptures, right? In Sunday school, I'm very sympathetic, of course, to the idea that Sunday school is not a place to do a lot of philosophy. That's <laughs> That's certainly true, uh, but I'm also sympathetic to the to the fact that saying what's true is not easy to do, and that just repeating the thing that I said last time doesn't mean that I've said what's true, even if the thing that I said last time was true when I said it. <laughs> right, right, because there's not there's always the dimension not only uh, of what it is that I'm saying. Uh, but of why I'm saying what, why I'm saying it, who's saying it, who am I saying it to? Uh, right, that context is always crucial to something being true or not, especially these kinds of things that are embedded in our relationships with other people and with God. And so, the business of saying something true uh, is a difficult, ongoing business that requires our full attention and effort. And we certainly can't take it for granted that that just repeating the thing that we said last time uh, is going to amount to saying something true or just repeating something that we read in the manual is going to amount to having said something true. Yeah. Um, And then this, there's another quote along the lines of this concept of simplicity that I really appreciated. Um, You said your, your own experience may be considered really different from mine. God will work with you as he sees fit. But if my religious life has had some sort of discernible arc, that arc has been has bent towards simplicity. My religious life has looked like God peeling away layer by layer my dogged beliefs in things that aren't true and logics that don't add up. It has looked like God stripping me of bad beliefs and false assumptions until I stood exposed, head bare and shoes removed to a deeper and more original grace that far from being a clean escape from suffering turned out to be a, the substance of God's enduring response to it. Little by little, I've stopped believing in original sin and little by little, I've been saved by God's original grace. And I really appreciate that because I feel I worry sometimes when individuals listen to, you know, Adam, Adam uh, Miller, the PhD, they think, oh, well, I'll just never get there. Like I'll never understand grace or these concepts like he understands it. But it's interesting to hear you articulate that way that we all have access to this remarkable theology. And I think that one of our greatest surprises as we do is just how how the com- complexity just washes away and how simple it is. And then it's available for everyone. Um and that we, as we go on these journeys of experimenting or uh, finding truth or whatever, and, and putting these pieces together, and I love that you know there's almost that line upon line uh, approach there. That this, um, you know, it can be revealed to all of us, and it's and it's available to all of us. What else would you say along that line, or maybe you said it all in that paragraph? <laughs> yeah, that's a good, 
that's a good paragraph. And uh, people's experiences, I think, do vary pretty widely. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think mine's too unusual, though. At the end of the day, but for me, the the closer I've felt to God, the emptier my head has been. The, the simpler the whole the simpler and cleaner and you know that's a kind of hard one clarity and simplicity but but the simpler and cleaner the whole thing has appeared to me but it can maybe especially in the context of religion it can feel like when god is doing this to you stripping away all those layers of of bad beliefs and and bad logics and poor assumptions it can feel like you're losing your religion, hmm. right? Uh, I've always loved that REM song. Uh, <laughs> nice. it, it can feel like you're losing your religion uh, when, in fact, it's your religion at work, right? Yeah. You thought your religion involved believing these 553 things and knowing exactly what they meant and being 100% clear and committed to them when it turned out that there were just these three things <laughs> that God needed you to have clearly in dead center focus uh, in order for you to be filled with his light and life and love and spirit to vindicate uh, your commitment to reading, to praying, to participating. Uh, that's, that's been a real experience for me, right? That there are so many things that I used to worry about in the context of religion that have fallen entirely by the wayside for me as God himself has taken center stage. Yeah. Well, Adam, this has been fantastic. I, again, I really enjoyed the book. Um, I mean, and I was pleased to see that it's, um, it's doing well as far as the Amazon lists are, are concerned. I don't know what yeah. that really means anything, but uh, yeah, I don't know either, but <laughs> But you'll take Fingers it. crossed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nice. Um, and obviously people can pick up the book, uh, you know, at your favorite online bookstore. I know it's published by Desert Book. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. Well, my last question for you is, as you have been, and you've been through various journeys of writing and whatnot, but with this original grace, like how has this helped you become a better, just this writing and research and um, thinking through and, and, doing one more draft or whatever it took. How, how has this book helped you become a better follower of Jesus Christ? I know I have a hard time imagining though. Certainly it's, it's possible and most people do it, <laughs> but I have a hard time imagining, you know, what a life of discipleship feels like from the inside out. If you're a carpenter or a, uh, bricklayer or a medical doctor. Uh, I mean, for me, my experience of God and my life of faith is so tightly intertwined with the work that I do professionally, right? With the things that I read and write and teach all day long, that it's hard for me to, to peel them apart. I know it's not an uncommon story for people to say, you know, I used to believe in God before I started to study philosophy or whatever. <laughs> but for me, it's just been, it's been exactly the opposite. Uh, <clears throat> I don't know that I would still be a Latter-day Saint or even a Christian if, if I hadn't become a philosopher. Uh, my search for God has gone hand in hand uh, with my investigation of, of that world. And, uh, God has shown himself to me there when he might not have been able to, to show himself to me at least other places. So so I don't, I don't know how to separate them in my heart and mind and, and I'm grateful that God's willing to work with what he's got here. That concludes this episode of the Leading Saints podcast. We'd love to hear from you about your questions or thoughts or comments. You can either leave a comment on the uh, post related to this episode at leadingsaints.org or go to leadingsaints.org slash contact and send us your perspective or questions. If there's other episodes or topics you'd like to hear on the Leading Saints podcast, go to leadingsaints.org slash contact and share with us the information there. And we would love for you to share this with 
any individual you think this would apply to, especially maybe individuals in your ward council or other leaders that you may know who would really appreciate the perspectives that we discussed. And remember, go to leadingsaints.org 14 to access our full Liberating Saints virtual library. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the declaration was made concerning the own and only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness. The loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away, and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.